we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In the late 90s, the Arizona police kicked down the door of an apartment in Tempe. Inside, the walls were smashed in and covered with fire extinguisher foam. The kitchen appliances were missing burning garbage had been stuffed into the air conditioner vents. The place was such a mess, the police added thousands of dollars of property damage to their list of charges against the tenant, Peter Mahoney, known to his friends as Wildman. Wildman was arrested and taken down to the Tempe police station. The detective who came in to interrogate him looked more like a hell's angel than a cop. He was big and burly, with a hardened face and a mane of long, dark hair. He introduced himself as Detective Reed. Reed told Wildman he could walk right out the door if he gave the police one simple thing, the full name of his ecstasy supplier, the mysterious kingpin known only as English Sean. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. This is our second episode on Sean Atwood. Last week, we explored how the British-born stockbroker became Arizona's biggest ecstasy distributor in the 1990s. This week, we'll talk about his unexpected turn from international drug kingpin to prison reform activist. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. By the time he reached his 30th birthday in 1998, Sean Atwood had become the most unlikely ecstasy kingpin in America. 
Only two years earlier, he'd left his job as a stockbroker to focus full-time on throwing raves and distributing drugs in Phoenix, Arizona. In no time at all, he'd built an international empire, smuggling in thousands of pills at a time from pharmaceutical labs in the Netherlands. And he did it all without facing any competition. Until Sammy the Bull Gravano came to town. Sammy the Bull had been an underboss in the infamous Gambino crime family, one of the five families of the Italian mafia that dominated New York City. In 1991, he turned government witness and testified against his former boss, John Gotti. He was put into the witness protection program and sent to Tempe, Arizona, where he opened a swimming pool installation company and lived quietly under the name Jimmy Moran. In 1995, he told his government handlers he'd had enough of his new life as Jimmy Moran. He took himself out of witness protection, moved to the Phoenix area, published a memoir, and told the press that if the mafia sent a hit team down to kill him, they better not miss. Sometime in the late 90s, Gravano left the pool installation business behind and partnered with a local gang called the Devil Dogs to start moving ecstasy. There was a blossoming rave scene in Phoenix, and only one other ecstasy dealer in town to contend with, English Sean Atwood. As we discussed last week, sometime in around 1998, Gravano sent his associate, known as the Spaniard, to meet with Sean and make him an offer to work together. Sean came to the meeting with a head full of liquid ecstasy and the ego to match, and politely declined the offer. As Sean left the meeting, he told his bodyguard what had happened. The bodyguard asked if this would start a war. Sean, still high out of his mind, calmly replied, sooner or later it very well could, yes. The war started sooner rather than later. The next day, a group of Gravano's thugs tracked down one of Sean's top dealers and knocked all his teeth out. Word got to Sean that Gravano had put a $10,000 bounty on his head. Sean immediately fled Phoenix, setting up a new home base 108 miles south in Tucson. It was close enough that he could still drive up for business, but far enough that he might be safe from Sammy the Bull's fury. He spent a few days in a hotel before buying a five-bedroom southwestern-style mansion in an upscale gated community. Even within the seclusion of his quiet Tucson neighborhood, Sean saw enemies everywhere he looked. He constantly checked the windows for signs that anyone was following him. It didn't help that he was, as usual, taking huge quantities of psychedelic drugs. As were his employees. The biggest threat to Sean's operation was actually coming from the inside. Without Sean in Phoenix to steer the ship, his crew of young drug addicts started to fall into chaos. A few months after Sean moved to Tucson, he saw a report about a shootout in Phoenix on the nightly news. Automatic gunfire had riddled several neighboring houses with bullets. Sean recognized the location as the home of the LSD chemist he kept on his company's payroll. Sean immediately feared the worst. Sammy Gravano was coming after him one associate at a time. When his phone rang, he answered it with trepidation. It was one of his dealers with troubling news. 
The shootout wasn't started by Gravano, but by one of Sean's own dealers, a man named Skinner. Skinner was Sean's top salesman, but his drug use and his behavior were spiraling out of control. He'd apparently tried to rob Sean's LSD chemist, instigating a shootout with all the other dealers gathered inside. Luckily, no one was injured, but tensions were high. Sean didn't want to let Skinner go. After all, he was their top salesman. But his right-hand man, his lifelong friend Wildman, warned him to be careful. If they couldn't trust Skinner, they couldn't trust anyone. A few months after that, sometime around 1998, one of Sean's smugglers was stopped at the Amsterdam airport with a suitcase full of 10,000 ecstasy pills. Sean asked him how it could have happened. Only specially trained drug dogs can sniff out ecstasy. The answer was that the smuggler was carrying marijuana in the same suitcase as the pills. Sean had specifically told all his dealers not to get near marijuana on their smuggling missions, since every drug dog is trained to find it. Soon after that, another smuggler was arrested at customs at the Phoenix airport. After years of smuggling with impunity, Sean's operation was suddenly losing more people and product than they could afford. Sean started to wonder if Sammy Gravano was tipping off the police to weed out the competition. After Sean's tense meeting with the Spaniard, Sammy the Bull had charged ahead with his own ecstasy smuggling ring. His product was subpar, and he didn't have Sean's connections within the rave scene, but he had enough muscle and name recognition to give Sean a run for his money. Sometime in around 1998, Sean went to a club in Tempe where a friend of his was DJing. Sean thought he was safe in Tempe, but he still wore sunglasses and a bandana to disguise himself. He also brought a few friends for security, including Wildman and his New Mexican Mafia buddy, G-Dog. As usual, they were all high on a combination of ecstasy and crystal meth. Sean removed his sunglasses to get his DJ friend's attention. He also got the attention of someone else across the room, the Spaniard. The Spaniard was flanked by dozens of associates, including Mark, the aggressive enforcer he'd brought to his meeting with Sean. He strolled over and called out, English Sean. Sean's heart started bracing. G-Dog and Wildman stepped up behind him. He shook the Spaniard's hand, praying for the best. Immediately, the Spaniard's enforcer, Mark, yelled over the music, what are you guys doing in here? You're way out of your league. This is our turf. Wildman offered a profanity-laden response, then told Mark to meet him outside. The Spaniard stepped in and told them all to chill out. Realizing they were outnumbered, Sean apologized and dragged Wildman outside as quickly as possible. That was a close call, but the night was still young, so Sean decided to ditch Tempe for Phoenix and continue the party at the last place his enemies would think to look for him, a gay club. In Phoenix, as in most cities, there was a lot of overlap between the rave scene and the mainstream gay nightlife. So Sean and his friends were greeted by familiar faces. They took some more ecstasy and faded into the crowd. Unfortunately, the familiar faces weren't all friendly. 
One of the dancers at the club recognized Sean and called Sammy Gravano's crew. Gravano had already heard about Sean's argument with the Spaniard, and he didn't take kindly to the insult. He immediately dispatched a crew to kidnap Sean from the club, take him out to the desert, and get rid of him once and for all. Sean and his friends were totally unaware of the threat. They would have stayed at the club all night, but in a bizarre stroke of luck, Wildman got into a brawl with another patron. Security was called, and Sean and his crew rushed out of the club to avoid any more trouble. By the time Gravano's hitmen arrived, Sean Atwood was long gone. Sean had evaded death by mere minutes, but there was still another threat looming on the horizon. For the past few years, Sean's network of dealers had been selling ecstasy almost exclusively at his house raves. He had full control of who came in and out of the building, and since his customers typically used the drugs immediately, they usually weren't carrying any pills by the time they left the party. This made it nearly impossible for police to trace the flow of drugs. Since Sean had a stronghold on the rave scene, Sammy the Bull had set his sights on mainstream clubs and bars downtown, where undercover cops were a regular fixture. The ecstasy trade had thrived in the shadows for years, but the local police were finally wising up to the ecstasy problem. This was bad news for Gravano and for Sean Atwood. Sean, being an economics whiz and stock market tycoon, noticed the changing trends right away. He decided it was time to invest in another avenue, methamphetamine hydrochloride, better known as crystal meth. Coming up, we'll explore Sean Atwood's venture into a new and more dangerous market. Now back to the story. In the late 90s, 30-year-old Sean Atwood's ecstasy empire was under siege by Sammy the Bull Gravano. Sensing troubles ahead in the ecstasy market, Sean added another arm to his business, distributing crystal meth. Sean and his friends had been using meth for years, but he didn't start selling it until sometime in the late 90s. It's not clear where his supply was coming from, but there's a good chance he was working with the New Mexican Mafia who he was previously introduced to by his friend and associate, G-Dog. Sean was already working with the gang to distribute ecstasy, and the New Mexican Mafia was known to traffic meth, though the connection hasn't been solidly confirmed. Meth turned out to be a profitable venture, but it also spelled danger for Sean's operation. The side effects of meth abuse include paranoia and erratic, violent behavior. Sean was already having trouble keeping his employees under control, and the more meth they were using, the more the organization crumbled. By the beginning of 1999, Sean had withdrawn into his gated Tempe home, terrified of another confrontation with Gravano's crew. He tried to dull his anxiety with a cocktail of drugs, but the constant substance abuse only made his and his friend's paranoia worse. Sean's right-hand man, Wild Man, was taking direction from the hallucinatory red dots he saw that told him to commit acts of violence. He kept plotting to kill Sean's top salesman, Skinner, who in turn was plotting to kill Wild Man. At one point, Skinner firebombed Wild Man's apartment, nearly killing his fiancée, the aptly named 
Wild Woman. As the organization's leadership fell apart, the day-to-day operations were left to the teenage ravers Sean had recruited as dealers and enforcers. They were left mostly unsupervised, since Sean was hidden away at his home in Tempe, and they used Sean's reputation as a license to do whatever they wanted. As an Englishman who didn't share America's gun-toting sensibilities, Sean had equipped his security team with tasers instead of guns. Throughout 1999, they ran around town in their black security t-shirts, tasing rival dealers and stealing their drugs and money. Instead of cutting Sean in on the stolen proceeds, they sold it on the side, pocketing the profits for themselves. At the same time, there was a sudden uptick in seized and stolen shipments, which Sean attributed to the police and Sammy Gravano, respectively. Many of these lost shipments were actually stolen by his own dealers, who sold them in secret, keeping all the proceeds. But Sean was correct in fearing that the police were closing in. Sometime around early 1999, Wildman was arrested. This wasn't Wildman's first trip to prison. Years earlier, he'd been arrested, deported, and banned from the country as a menace to society. But Sean had secured him a fake passport and brought him right back to America. No one had discovered the deception until now. Wildman was looking at serious prison time, both for the immigration violation and for his suspected connection to the mysterious English Sean, the only known British drug trafficker in Arizona. The officer leading the investigation, Detective Reed, had deduced that the English Wildman must be connected to English Sean, and he wouldn't let him go until he gave up his supplier. Wildman wouldn't fold. He refused to answer any questions. While he sat behind bars awaiting deportation, his fiancée, Wild Woman, took over his drug distribution responsibilities. This went smoothly for a few months until late in 1999, Wild Woman's apartment was raided by the police. Leading the charge was Detective Reed. Wild Woman was handcuffed and taken to the bench right outside, while Reed and his men ransacked the apartment. They searched and searched, but there was no trace of any contraband. Detective Reed realized the drugs must be hidden in the one spot his team hadn't searched, inside the safe. But they needed a key to open the safe. Where could the key be? Wild Woman peeked in through the open front door. The key to the safe was on her key ring. She knew once Reed found it, it was game over. Reed's team searched the apartment again, but they didn't see the key ring. Instead, Reed found a hammer and battered the safe open. Inside, he found thousands of ecstasy pills and a big brown envelope full of LSD. There was also a bottle of ketamine, which he left inside, mistaking it for a soda bottle. Wild Woman was taken down to the station, where Detective Reed asked her if she knew English Sean. She insisted she'd never heard the name, and she didn't know anyone in Arizona except her boyfriend, who was about to be deported. Reed eventually let her go and told her to call him in a few days if she had any more information. Sean obviously assumed this was a setup. Detective Reed had already nabbed his closest friend, and now he was after Wild Woman, too. It was only a matter of time until one of the trails led directly to Sean. This fear was totally justified, 
but because of Sean's constant drug use, it became elevated to the level of obsessive paranoia. He couldn't make a single business transaction without worrying that he was walking into a police ambush. He refused to talk on the phone in case his lines might be tapped. He wore his bandana and sunglasses every time he went out in public, which did nothing to help him look less suspicious. Just a few years earlier, Sean had been such a reckless driver that he was permanently banned from Enterprise Rent-A-Car after crashing two car rentals in three months. But now he drove unbearably slowly, his eyes darting from mirror to mirror. If he suspected a car was following him, he'd drive up and down the highway for half an hour or more until he lost them. As Sean was retreating, his empire was crumbling. The police raids, competition from Sammy Gravano, and lost shipments from mysterious robberies were draining Sean dry. Even without his ecstasy and mess sales, he'd been pulling in a good profit from the money he'd invested in technology stocks, but by late 1999, the stock market was stagnating. He had to abandon his mansion in Tempe, unable to afford the monthly $20,000 rent and utility bills. Sean knew his time was coming to an end, but in February 2000, something miraculous happened. Sammy the Bull Gravano was arrested. 54 of his associates went down with him, including the Spaniard, Mark, and most of his partnered gang, the Devil Dogs. Sean Atwood's ecstasy monopoly was restored. Unfortunately, the prosperity was short-lived. The next month, in March 2000, the dot-com bubble burst. The stock market collapsed, and Sean's millions in technology shares were now worth nothing. Arizona's biggest ecstasy business had gone bankrupt overnight. Sean also quickly realized that with Gravano behind bars, the police's full attention was focused on him. These fears were confirmed by his attorney, who told him in early 2000, my sources at the DEA tell me it's time for you to get the hell out of Arizona. Sean had lost almost all his money. The police were on his tail, and his heavy drug use wasn't making it any easier to cope with the stress. This is not where he ever imagined he'd be at age 32. He needed to get out, but he was so entangled in debts to his suppliers, he wasn't sure how. And then he met Claudia. They were introduced through Sean's roommate in early 2001. Claudia wasn't a raver, she didn't do any drugs, and she had a steady job as a cocktail waitress. Compared to the rest of Sean's social circle, she was as innocent as can be. Sean badgered Claudia for weeks before she agreed to go on a date with him. She disapproved of his drug dealing from the start. But as they got to know each other, she saw him for the smart, curious kid he once was, not the drug-addled ecstasy kingpin he'd become. After they'd been dating for a while, Sean realized he was falling in love. He told her, you're the golden-hearted woman I've been looking for all my life, but I've always chosen the wrong one. In response, Claudia gave him an ultimatum. She wasn't going to stay involved with someone who put their life in constant danger. Either he'd walk away from drug dealing, or she'd walk away from him. Sean knew she was right. Right then and there, he made a promise. He was going to dismantle his drug empire before it was too late. 
Little did he know, it already was too late. When we come back, we'll take a look at the investigation that finally closed in on English Sean Atwood. Now, back to the story. In 2001, 33-year-old Sean Atwood decided to leave what was left of his drug empire behind and turn his life around. He broke ties with his associates and moved in with his girlfriend, Claudia. With her encouragement, he stopped using drugs, started taking kickboxing classes, and went back to trading stocks online. He'd made it out of the drug trade without ever getting caught. Or so he thought. Sean's understanding of the American legal system was murky at best. He thought that if the police wanted to arrest him, they had to actually catch him in the act of dealing drugs. Since he'd stopped dealing, he figured he was safe. In reality, Arizona's statute of limitations on drug crimes is seven years, and no physical evidence is needed to make an arrest. Sean's six years of drug trafficking were still fair game for prosecutors. And just as he was trying to leave his past behind, Detective Reed's investigation was closing in. In January 2001, an anonymous source called the Tempe police with details on the activities and whereabouts of the elusive English Sean. Detective Reed finally had enough evidence to open a full-scale investigation, and by the beginning of 2002, surveillance and wiretaps were in place for Sean and all of his close associates. Detective Reed watched Sean like a hawk for months. The Tempe police sifted through around 10,000 tapped phone calls, but none of them directly involved Sean. It seemed he never spoke on the phone. He never did business in person either. Sean Atwood was a ghost, a criminal mastermind. More accurately, Sean Atwood was no longer a criminal. The only evidence they could collect was from his old associates mentioning his name in calls between themselves. But that was enough to charge Sean with conspiracy. On the morning of May 16, 2002, Sean Atwood woke up at 6.30 a.m. in the apartment he shared with Claudia. He sat down at the desk in his boxer shorts, booted up the computer, and checked his stocks. Then he heard the banging on the door. A voice outside yelled, Tempe Police Department, we have a warrant. Open the door. Sean ran to the bedroom and woke up Claudia. She sprung up out of bed and asked him, what should we do? Sean stared at her, searching his mind for a solution. The police kept pounding on the door. Finally, Sean said, better open it. Before he got the chance, the door was ripped from its hinges. A 20-person SWAT team swarmed into the apartment. Sean dropped to the floor. Handcuffs clinked around his wrists. He looked up into the smirking face of a burly man with long, dark hair, Detective Reed. Reed yanked Sean to his feet, looked him in the face and said, English Sean, you're a big name from the rave scene. Over the course of the next few days, 12 of Sean's former associates were arrested, most of whom he hadn't had contact with in over a year. Altogether, they were charged with 155 felonies, including conspiracy, participating in a criminal syndicate, and organization of an illegal enterprise. During the investigation into Sean Atwood, 
the police also found ample evidence and witness testimony that implicated Sammy Gravano, whose trial was already underway. In September 2002, Gravano was sentenced to 20 years in prison, the maximum sentence for his charges. A year-long investigation called Operation Green Clover exploded into 55 indictments for suspects who allegedly participated in three of the largest ecstasy distribution rings ever busted in the U.S. Authorities have seized 85,000 ecstasy pills so far, according to U.S. Attorney Spokesman Jeff Dorschner. This bust is significant because it cripples or dismantles three organizations that have been key to distributing the drugs in Colorado and elsewhere in the United States. Three men are also charged with knowingly distributing ecstasy to a 16-year-old girl in Boulder who died after taking the green clover pill last year. Aaron McIntyre, Grand Junction, Colorado. They're being held on a charge of conspiracy to distribute dangerous narcotics, which is a class two felony in Arizona. Uh, the maximum penalty for with no priors is up to 12 and a half years. Obviously, some of these individuals have priors and uh, depending on that, it could go up as high as, as 35 years. On his attorney's advice, Sean Atwood made a plea bargain instead of going to trial. He pled guilty to three felonies, money laundering, attempting to commit a dangerous drug violation, and facilitating a drug transaction. Sean spent 26 months at Maricopa County Jail waiting for his sentencing. He knew serving time wouldn't be easy, but he was totally unprepared for the conditions in what's been called the harshest jail system in the United States. Maricopa County's jails were under the supervision of Joe Arpaio, who calls himself America's toughest sheriff. Throughout the 2000s and early 2010s, Arpaio and his sheriff's office were sued for a litany of abuses, including racial profiling, illegally detaining Latino citizens, wrongful death, and violating the constitutional rights of prisoners. The jail Sean was held in was severely understaffed and underfunded. Inmates were fed only one or two meals a day, which usually consisted of moldy bread and bologna. Cockroaches infested the entire building. Arpaio's most notorious act was the creation of what became known as the Tent City. When the maximum population was exceeded at the main Maricopa County Jail, which, for the record, is the fourth largest jail system in the world, the overflow inmates were housed in Korean War-era military tents in the desert near one of the permanent facilities. The temperature inside the tents reached up to 150 degrees in the summer, and Amnesty International condemned the camp as inhumane. But the worst threat to the inmates was the violence. Without adequate staffing, warring gangs dominated the cell block. Sean got used to the sound of skulls being smashed against toilets in neighboring cells. For the first year, Sean had some protection around him, since his co-defendants were being held in the same jail. But once they were transferred to different facilities, he had to rely on his English charm to endear himself to the other inmates. Sean admits his foreign background helped him make friends. He recalled, they called me England and would ask me had I met the queen, Benny Hill? Although some people would come up and ask me, what language do they speak in England? Throughout his time in jail, Sean documented the inhumane conditions and violence he witnessed in letters to his aunt. She then published them online on an anonymous blog titled John's Jail Journal. In just a few months, 
the site had garnered more than 850,000 visitors. By 2004, it was gaining attention from international news outlets, including the BBC and The Guardian. In the late 2000s, Sean Atwood's blog would become evidence in two federal court cases that found the Maricopa County Jail's conditions to be unconstitutional. In the summer of 2004, just before his 34th birthday, Sean was finally sentenced to nine and a half years in prison, including the two years he'd already served. He'd spend the remaining seven years in an Arizona state prison. Sean walked into prison with a positive attitude. He figured state prison couldn't be any worse than Maricopa County Jail, and if he laid low and kept to himself, he might get out early for good behavior. That positivity was crushed when he met his new cellmate, a convicted murderer who immediately told him, I've got a padlock and a sock. I can smash your brains in while you're asleep. I can kill you whenever I want. Sean assured him that he would be the quietest cellmate he'd ever had. The cellmate kept threatening him, angling to start a fight, until the cell door opened and another inmate walked in. Sean recognized him immediately. Junior Bull, Sammy the Bull Gravano's son. Sean was cornered. He forced a smile and asked him, how are you doing? To his relief, Junior Bull replied, I'm doing all right. I read in the papers about you starting a blog in Arpaio's jail. Just like that, Sean had earned respect with the prison's hierarchy. Over the next few years, he kept his website running, turning his focus to the lives of his fellow inmates. He interviewed the mass murderers and mafia hitmen on his cell block and spun their recollections into vivid, if unpolished, blog posts. To improve his writing, he spent time in the prison library. He read over a thousand books during his incarceration, ranging from fiction to philosophy to books on yoga and meditation. As Sean reflected on his past, he realized how lucky he was to be alive after his years of drug abuse, crime, and sparring with the Italian mafia. He resolved that once he was out of prison, he would dedicate his life to making sure other young people didn't make his same mistakes. In 2007, after serving less than six years of his nine-year sentence, Sean Atwood was released from prison. He was 39 years old. He was deported back to England and is permanently banned from entering the United States. Sean's girlfriend, Claudia, had broken up with him a few years into his incarceration. He moved back into his parents' house, which he hadn't been into since he first moved to America in 1991. For a few years, he continued to maintain John's jail journal, now under his own name, publishing letters from his fellow inmates who were still in prison. Sean's reputation wasn't harmed by his three felony convictions. In fact, Sean emerged from the criminal underworld as a strange type of hero. Since his release, Sean has been interviewed about prison reform on TV news programs in over 40 countries, including the BBC, Sky News, and CNN, and has given several TED Talks about his life as a drug kingpin. Sean also regularly gives anti-drug talks at schools around the UK. He boasts that his harrowing accounts of prison life have driven elementary school children to tears. When he's not speaking, he's writing. Sean has published 10 books, 
including a trilogy of memoirs, Party Time, Hard Time, and Prison Time, a four-volume nonfiction series about the war on drugs, a true crime book called Unmaking a Murderer, which investigates the case at the center of Netflix's Making a Murderer, and two self-help books. Sean also operates a YouTube channel that currently has more than 150,000 subscribers. In his videos, he answers questions about his life and advocates for prisoners' rights issues. His next book, We Are Being Lied To, The War on Drugs, is expected to be published in 2019. The bizarre saga of Sean Atwood's rise, fall, and reform is in some ways the prototypical story of the American dream. He came to the vast deserts of the American West with his eyes set on making a fortune, and he succeeded. He also learned the great lesson of the American dream. Power and wealth can't buy happiness. Looking back on his life, Sean said, I squandered millions, and everything I ever earned was confiscated by the state of Arizona. But I'm happier than ever now. I've rebuilt my life, and I wake up with a smile on my face every day because I feel at peace with myself and the world. Sean's life stands as a cautionary tale to any would-be kingpins. The high is always followed by the crash. Everything that comes easily is just as easily taken away. And before you build an international drug empire, take a good, hard look at the conditions inside your local jail. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Jorge Molina and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.